Hello, everyone. This is W, host of the High Art on the Edge page. Welcome to another episode of Surprise Cast. Did you know that Ireland is home to many great artists such as The Frames, Coors, and of course, The Pogues? But let's not forget about the deeply talented Olden Conlon, a musician that has been compared to Roy Orbison and Van Morrison. Last year, he dropped a sparkling album called Starlight Ballroom. It's a wonderful collection of songs that hone in on a particular setting and time. More on that one later. Let's bring in this man with a crackling warm voice and steady guitar playing. Alton Conlon, welcome to Surprise Cast. How are you? Good, W. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Absolutely. Thank you so much, my friend, for wanting to participate. I have been very excited about this conversation. And I thought, how do I want to start this conversation? Do I want to go music? Do I want to drop a quote? Do we want to talk the meaning of your first name? But no, (laughs) I'm going to ask you this question. What gets your day going? Is it coffee? Is it music? Is it exercise? What puts the wind in your sail? Well, if I do have a coffee, sometimes first thing, it doesn't necessarily get my day going. The The best thing for me in the morning, I don't always do it, but is to go for a good brisk walk. That is the best thing for me to like blow away the cobwebs and just kind of even start thinking a little creatively and, and lift the mood up. But a lot of mornings, I will just get up and have my coffee, and that just leaves me a little jittery. (laughs) Is there a type of coffee coffee that you really like? Oh, I like I do like my coffee. Like in Ireland, up till maybe five six years ago, we didn't have a great coffee culture. In the last four or five years, it's vastly improved, and you can get some really good cafes around. And I tend to. If I find a good cafe, I'll get grind get, get them to grind their beans for me and I will bring them home here and have it. But I, I'm not really a connoisseur of sorts. I'm, I, I, but I know a nice coffee. All right. You know, speaking of walking, let's walk back to your childhood. Sure. Where did you grow up and how did that place shape you as you are the person today? I grew up in Loch Ray, a small town about. 30 miles east of Galway City, about 30 miles inland from the coast. and Not a small, small town by Irish standards, but a reasonably sized inland town. And I live about 30 minutes from there now, even further inland. That's where I've made my home. And in a much more rural setting now, actually. We we, we grew up almost in the middle of the town. My mum's house, which is, she's still there. The house is still there. It runs right. It runs right onto the street. the The footpath, as we call it for you guys, the pavement, is right there at the front door. So I grew up in this town, and it certainly shaped me. I mean, I still have a lot of my same friends there. My family are still there. It's very much my home, and I think just that small town kind of thing that we had going on. I think a little bit inferior to 
the, the big city of Galway or Dublin and people we knew there, we were a little bit more low key. And I think it shaped me a little bit in that way. I'm I'm very much a county kind of person rather than a city guy. I, I mean, I love going to, I went to LA to make that album and I love going to visit cities. But um, when I get back into a rural setting or a small town, I very much feel I'm at home in a smaller community. So I guess it kind of, I guess it kind of shaped me a lot mentally in that sense with Galway being well known for all of its live music and pubs and art and culture did that bleed into your smaller part of the town yeah and all I think we also had our own little thing going on if anything it made us a little bit more tribal in Loch and I, I formed a band with some friends when I was 13 14 years of age and in, in the school we were in and you know, there was a little bit of a scene there. And I guess, though, going into Galway as teenagers, yes, you'd see the pubs had cover bands and lots of music and traditional music down Shop Street and that. I suppose in that sense, we were immersed with music and maybe something now that when you say that to me, that we probably took for granted a little. And and I'm sure it did seep into the, the county towns, really. I mean... There's another town similar to Loch Grey called Tume, which is about 20 miles north of Loch Grey. And that has the, the band, the Saw Doctors were there. And I think they, you know, they they also had a, a, their own local scene and very tribal little area. And I think Loch Grey, we we'd something a little smaller again. But I, I am sure, yeah, now that you say it, you know, we did have all of that growing up in Galway City. It's renowned for that. And I'm sure being 30 miles out the road or 30 minute car journey, that that absolutely did, did overlap. When I was a young lad myself, I played a lot of baseball. And my coach at the, to- at the time, Dr. Tom, was a huge impact, inspiration for me. Can you talk to me about any family members, relatives, anyone that had a big impact on your life? Sure. like. When I was probably only four or five, my one of my cousins on my dad's side. So my dad had us pretty late in his life. He was like in his 50s. So a lot of my cousins are maybe 15, 20, 25 years older than me. So I have one cousin, Declan, who's now an actor, and he played guitar. He plays a little bit of music. But when I was about four or five, I guess he was probably 20 maybe 18, 19, 20. I could have been even younger. I could have been three or four, but I recall going down to his house with my dad and seeing his guitar, his electric guitar, which was standing up on a chair in the kitchen. And I was so small, I couldn't pick it up. That's That, that was a very early recollection. So I think having that older cousin who was a bit cool, who had this guitar, I immediately kind of looked at this thing and thought, oh my God, what is this? I knew what it was from TV and stuff, but to see one in the flesh, I think I got an immediate kind of, wow, this is, I was intrigued. So, that and then that immediately started this kind of thing with music for me. I mean, just hearing songs on the radio and having an older brother and sister who had tapes and we had tapes, we wouldn't have had vinyl. You know, they, they got their Michael Jackson thriller and bad. I was probably five or six. I, I recall them listening to music. I recall my dad singing. So I immediately 
kind of zoned in on songs and and on music and and, and showed a great interest. What were you like as a kid? Oh, Jesus is good. <laughs> I haven't thought about this. <laughs> I was a nightmare. <laughs> no, no, that's a joke. That that that's like something you know you you might have been you know a bold child here would be called like that kid's a nightmare. <laughs> I I think I was quite I was quite I think I was quite and 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 pretty placid. I think that quite and placid would probably be the two words that jump into my mind. Now, if you ask my siblings, they may say something else. <laughs> and your teachers. Teachers, no, I was okay. I was a good kid. I mean, I, I didn't, I wasn't a troublemaker at all. I don't think I got in trouble much. I mean, I think I was a pretty, probably a pretty nervy kid, actually, because I think I was afraid to get in trouble. And if I did, I'd I'd take it pretty bad. And so it wasn't the kind of thing I wanted to repeat. With your cousin Declan, is that his name? Declan Conlon, yeah. he's a De- Declan's still an actor and he does very well. He'd be predominantly a theatre actor in in, in the UK and Ireland, but he's been in quite a few movies and series and stuff as well. So you see his guitar, you get inspired, you start learning more about music. When did you start to feel that you were becoming a musician? And talk to me about the growing pains that came along with that experience. Mm, Yeah. I, I think as a young kid, when I saw that guitar, there's a picture of me sitting on the end of a sofa and I must be six, five, six. And they obviously bought me a toy guitar and I'm sitting there like I'm playing it. So I was, I was already obsessed. And there, there was a music shop in Loch Ray in my hometown, a guy called Mike Durvin. He sold guitars and stereos and stuff. And, and, and I recall nobody would buy them that you'd have two or three electric guitars on the window and they they seemed to be there forever because i i could go there every day and just put my face and nose to the window and and these guitar i i got to know them intimately like <laughs> by looking at them and you know i knew every little crevice on these guitars and you know on the neck of the guitar i knew all the little symbols and stuff so them guitars mustn't have sold now that i think about it you know they must have sat in they got sun bleached and stuff, you know, but uh, so I, I was already kind of going that direction. But so when I was like 10, I think probably nine or 10, some of myself and some friends went from the boys school. We used to go to an all boys school and then the girls went to a convent down the road. And the, the principal of that school or you know, the person over the school was a nun and she used to give us guitar lessons. So we'd go down once a week and that's when I first started to learn my G, D, and C, and A minor, and E minor, and she, she teaches songs that I didn't really, you know, at the time, I didn't appreciate, they were old folk ballads, Irish ballads, and the great thing about them lessons was, she encouraged us to sing the song as we learned the chord, so I really appreciate that start I got, because I, as I learned to change from my G chord to my D chord, I was also singing on top of it, and that was something that just that was a really really good start to learning the guitar so i did that for about a year and then i think i kind of fell out of love with it because the songs weren't as i said you know it wasn't very cool to be getting lessons from a nun and and singing these songs so 
I, I parked it for a little while, but when I was a teenager then, very much again, when I saw other guys, I went to the secondary school, high school, and uh, there was a band there, and I joined that band. And because of the songs, we were I was singing. I wasn't playing guitar. But then I started to pick up the guitar again and learn the chords or relearn them and, and started playing like some dire straits with them and Van Morris and Brown Eyed Girl. And then there was a, some local bands, as I mentioned, the Saw Doctors and the Stunning were two big Galway bands. And we used to cover them songs in, in the school band when I was about 13. So this was the first, this was the introduction for me. With that introduction, how much of traditional Irish music were you absorbing in terms of songwriting, lyric writing? I know melodies are a big part of Irish music. Was all that starting to grab hold of you? Yeah, I guess so. Like, as I said, we were learning songs like Brown Eyed Girl or, you know, songs that are like standards, I guess, and great classical structures, your verse and chorus and your bridge and stuff. So I was already getting a sense of, I guess, the ingredients of a song and, and also the, as you said earlier about before this podcast starts about Paris, Paradise Lane, I was starting to understand the arrangement of a song. And, you know, when you're when you're covering stuff, I know it's just I know it's Brown Eyed Girl. It's not his greatest song, but you know, there's great lyrics and there's La Da Dee's in there and there's there's all them ingredients. And then and then the Saw Doctors and the Stunning, two great Galway bands, they had wonderful songs. They have wonderful songs. So, yeah, you're getting a grasp of how how lyrics make a song and what sounds good. And so, yeah, and like, you know, when you're 13 in a local van like that you're doing and and we didn't have cell phones or mobile phones so we were doing it a lot you know we were we were in each other's houses practicing and it felt like we were doing it a lot yeah so yeah now it's funny when you ask me all these things they're not things i think about you know day to day but it's very interesting to to be asked these questions and and have to answer them I kind of want to know, is there an Irish instrument that you gravitate towards, whether it be the harp, the boron? While growing up, was there something that, oh, I want to learn and play that one day? No, actually, sorry, what you said in the last question as well about Irish traditional stuff. Like, no, I, I felt like we grew up in, you know, 1980s, early 90s Ireland, our TVs with two or three channels. We got video machines. Everything was America, really. You know, we were getting, we were getting a lot of our music there. My, like my sister loved Prince, and so I'd hear her playing her Prince CDs or Prince tapes, and you know, Nirvana, Pearl Jam were coming to the fore when I started in a band when I was thirteen. That would have been ninety three, you know. So no, we were getting that whole wave. So I didn't, and then. My family wouldn't have been into traditional Irish music. There was no culture that really in Lockray that I was aware of. So no, we we very I'm very much gravitated towards your rock and roll songs. The two bands I keep mentioning, the Sonning and the Star Doctors, they kind of had that thing going on as well. Even though the songs, especially the Saw Doctors, would have been about their area. You know, I know Leo and them would be very much into Springsteen and the E Street Band, so. No, I never really was 
in the traditional sense of Irish music involved. Now, actually, the, the Starlight Ballroom probably is the closest I've come to writing stuff that is finally in my 40s, where I'm kind of really grabbing on to rural Ireland and what existed back then. And, and there's a couple of tracks on the album that I feel have a real Irish feel to them. When did you realize that you had a singing voice, a very lovely singing oh, voice? I don't know. I think when I was a kid, my dad would sing a lot and he had a nice voice. And I think my mom might say, a couple, I remember hearing a few people kind of going, you have a lovely voice, which was a nice thing to, to hear because I think that kind of encouraged me. But I don't like when I I don't feel like I found my voice until my my thirties. You know, I think I think when I was covering Neil Young and stuff and playing playing shows and pubs for money, I was kind of a bit of a mimic, you know. And like I, I even remember a few people coming to my shows when I was maybe maybe ten twelve years ago and kind of going, "Oh, I think you've found your voice." You know, I think it took me a little while to find my own voice and to actually. Because we sang in pubs a lot, and pubs over here, people are quite drunk, or they used to be, and rowdy. You ended up pushing more. You ended up really pushing your voice. And I think it wasn't until the last 10 years where it softened a lot, and I, I, I relaxed it a lot more, and I found my own voice rather than, as I said, you know, learning a cover song and, and, and kind of mimicking the singer a little bit. So I, I think it took me a long time as the answer to, to find my voice. Was there a particular vocal style, an artist that you wanted to emulate a little bit, obviously retaining your own style, but was there someone that you go, oh yeah, I kind of want to sound like that? Again, I think it was more like phases I'd go through. Like I, I, like I went through a big period of love and need young, which I still would. So, and I think I'm, I think I may have had that twang for a little while and, and then you know, you mentioned Roy Orbison earlier. I probably went through a phase of liking Roy 10 or 15 years ago. I mean, I love all these people still, but you know, you get zoned in on it. And I think I kind of dipped in and out of a bunch of them and, and then finally found my own. But no, I never, thankfully right now or in the last few years, no, I've no interest in copying anybody, which is a, like, I think it's important to come to that that place where you're no longer trying to emulate somebody, you know, you just feel like you're doing you, you know? So you played in some bands. When did you discover that you wanted to become a professional musician? I think once I started in a band when I was in high school or secondary school, as we call it, I kind of knew from then I was kind of going, and I, I was a pretty nervous teenager. Whatever about as a child, I was probably a little bit placid as a child in in company, you know, in, in groups and stuff. But when I became a teenager, that became a lot, a lot more intense, to be honest. And I just kind of figured, I thought the music for me was, I could see it down the line. I thought this is kind of my salvation. And I, I and then there was a little bit of me going, Am I, do I want to do this so I can avoid uh, schoolwork? <laughs> if I'm being quite frank, you know, there was a little bit of me going, I don't have to worry about schoolwork because this is what I'm going to do. And I did find school quite hard. I found it hard to retain information. Being quite nervous in a, in a classroom will do that to somebody. I think if you're if you're kind of nervous in a, in a group or in a class, 
it's very hard to retain info because you're you're quite occupied being being quite nervous, you know. So I think, yeah, and I heard about this place in Dublin that was like even the name, it was called Rock College. It was Ballyfermot College of Art and Music. And there was a course called Rock College, which really did predominantly concentrate on songwriting and recording and that. So once I heard about that course, I I was like, that's where I'm going. Once you heard about that, you started crafting and working on your own career. When was your first album drop? 2008? Many years later. Yeah, because I did the Rock College thing and it didn't. It was weird. It didn't work out for me again. I think I went from one classroom atmosphere. I thought, I don't know what I envisioned it to be, but I f- felt like I went from one classroom to another. Working in the classroom, and I, I found it like where they were, you know, doing songwriting classes and that. I, I I already at this point kind of felt like this is not, this is strange to be teaching this. I'd done a lot at home. I'd written a lot at home during my teenage years. But to just have somebody up the top of the class kind of teaching it, I kind of rebelled against that then when I went there. And I started working. I was playing, still doing cover gigs. So I did them for a few years. And then when I was 26, no, then I met an EP. I met two EPs when I was 22 and 24. But I wasn't really out gigging original gigs. I was still making my living as a, a pub performer. And when I was 27, then I started recording my first record. And I think I released it in 2009. I would have been 29. And from that point on, then I, I've been on this path. When you hear that record and you hear songs like The Will, Vessel, Bless Your Heart, how do you feel about hearing some of those songs? Oh, yeah, yeah it's a strange one. It's just because I, I, some people at shows ask for them and I, I haven't played them in so long. Some of them I'd know how to play, but some I actually don't. And uh, yeah, I feel strange. I, 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 when I listen to the recording, because I know what I went through to make it, it sounds very labored to me. It sounds, it doesn't flow as much as I would like it to. But saying that, if I went back in to record that now, I would, I, I would probably lose a lot of that magic. I'd lose a lot of, I can hear something in my voice singing them songs, you know it's of a time for me that I wouldn't want to change. And I, the truth is I haven't listened to it in quite a while, but uh, yeah, when I hear it, I, I'm a little judgmental of, of like technical issues and stuff, but of the songs, I'm also kind of like going, okay, them songs were written when I was some of them in my late teens, some of my twenties, there's a magic to some of them that uh, you can't really plan out, you know, you can't. And, for that, I kind of love them, actually. You know, now I can criticize them a little as an adult and kind of go, oh, technically, that's not great. I should have cut a bar there. I maybe shouldn't have did this there. But that's all technical nonsense, to be honest. There's something magical about them that, uh, that yeah, I, I have to. And I'm probably so distant from it now. I, I, I'm kind of looking back at it like it's, you know, looking back at a child. And you're not going to be mean to a child, you know. You're just going to be like, good job. <laughs> when you work on new material tell the listener the process that you tend to what, what is your approach while working on new music yeah i i late like my that the starlight ballroom came out last 
September, October, I think. And like I, I made it a year previous to that, and I, I sat on it for a little while. So I wasn't really writing since I wrote that record up until the last few weeks, because I guess, Dobby, well, what I do now, so much of it is, you know, you're doing your own admin, you're doing your social media, you're booking shows. So it's a business at the end of the day. I do this for a living now. So, so much of my time is preoccupied with organizing and that. And uh, now that the record's been out a few months and I put a lot of work into the release of it, did did a lot of shows. But I think now I kind of go and I, I will release another single from it. I think you can do that here. You can put out another single or two just to keep some awareness of it and try and sell more copies and that. But I feel a little bit freed of it now. So I think in the last few weeks, what happens is I start getting ideas for songs. And just last week before I went on holidays, I was up in Dublin for a night and I got an idea for a song and it just kind of washed over me. And I, I sat and I wrote for an hour. And that that's kind of my process. I don't plan it. It's just something might lodge in my brain. And I, I kind of, uh, and then I'm like a dog with a bone. If I feel like this has got potential, I, I don't, I don't really let it simmer. I try to get in on top of it and, and get it out there. I write it, you know, and then, and then I tend to write these songs and I keep them all on voice memos and then a couple of journals there. And, Usually after about a year, year and a half of that, I kind of realize, oh, my God, I've got eight songs here. So something is starting to take shape. But but none of it is really planned out. I, I mean, I, when I get up in the morning and have my walk or my coffee, whichever it is, I don't really have a routine where I go, OK, now the next two hours are dedicated to writing. I'm, I'm Unfortunately, I'm not that. I'm not designed that way. Yeah, I, I can get up and do other work and know, OK, I got to email and got to do X, Y and Z. But uh for writing, it's more like if it strike if something hits me, I, I'll run with it. But I, I don't really force it. Am I hearing you don't really fall prey to writer's block or musician block? You don't hit that wall. Oh, I, maybe I do, but I'm. I, it doesn't bother me. It's like it's it's if it's not happening now, it's not happening. I think that's what I'm trying to say. In a, a year might pass, and I'm like, oh, I haven't written in a year. But I, I, I'm booking shows. I'm playing shows. I'm now. It's great that I have five records because I'm kind of going. Well, like I can't even play two full records at the gig now. I've got, you know, you, you end up having all these this back catalogue, and it's a real joy to have that. And in a weird way, I don't feel like, I don't feel it's that necessary for me to write huge amounts now. I feel like I've done all this work. I have this body of work, and 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 not a not a, like people know of me here. X amount of people know, but there's a hell of a lot of people who haven't heard my music, who don't know me. So a lot of me is as well as trying to just in, invest in what I've already done, do more shows. People hear me live and go, I've never heard of you. And I really enjoyed that. I'm going to pick up your record. So a lot of me is kind of just going, yeah, I, I got to I got to sell them records. I spend so much time and effort on. But that, that's the mode I'm in right now. If you spoke to me in another six months, I could say, hey, I just want to go forward. <laughs> Let's flash forward then from 2008 to 2023 with the release of the gorgeous album Starlight Ballroom. So think of this like a nice bottle of wine. It's out. It's open. You've uncorked it. You're letting it breathe. Time has passed. How are you feeling about this album now that it's out in the world and it's had some time for people to really sponge up? 
Yeah, I'm really proud of this record. I'm actually feel like I've arrived at a point where I'm going, okay, this this is, you know, I, I can kind of confident be confident about it, about the piece of work that it is. I mean, I've got it printed on vinyl, and I sat sat in my cabin and I listened to it, and I turned the record around and. And I, I kind of just thought, okay, this is a good record. I, th- I think the songs are strong. I loved working with David Garza. He, like you were talking about Paradise Lane, the opening acapella part. And like David played a huge part in arranging that. And I co-wrote five songs with him out of the 10. He helped shape it. So I, what I loved about working on Starlight Ballroom with David was it was very collaborative and I wasn't afraid to co-write with him. I wasn't my previous records. I was more precious. I had, I kind of had the Gollum thing going on, you know, this is my precious song. And if somebody made a suggestion to an arrangement or a lyric, you'd be kind of insulted. Whereas now I feel a little more like, oh, you get an idea and you have somebody cool like David over there, like you throw it at him and see what he's going to add to it and, and how he's going to help shape it. So th- that's been a huge thing for me to kind of, I guess, let go of that control which does i find doesn't really benefit certainly me i'm very very proud of the record very proud of of how it was made how quickly we wrote the songs for a finisher five of them were written in the last two weeks you know just the two weeks previous to recording we recorded over four days not even fully four days so i feel like i've arrived at a place yeah where i'm going okay this is how I like to work. And I could definitely see myself making another record in that same fashion again, where I kind of dedicate a month to pre-production and writing and pulling it all together. Cause I kind of enjoy that challenge. And it's actually, I, I feel like I rise to that, you know, while working with David, this composer producer, what did he bring to the table that really added elements to these songs, added nuance added some depth. But I think the first thing he brought to it was I had all these songs, but they're on pages everywhere and I, I could play this one and that one. But I think what David brought to it initially was a kind of an overview of the whole thing and helped me kind of see where this was going. You know, he kind of said, Alton, this song I can hear relates to this. And he heard the Starlight Ballroom, the song itself, and he thought, oh, that's just an amazing track. And, you know, he, he kind of said, I could see Susie Gossip sitting in this same, in this starlight place, you know, and, and and he kind of started to shape it with me that way. And as he was shaping it, I was writing and he was kind of leading me with it. And I'd send him something and he'd send me something back. So you had that kind of dynamic where, and I like that. I think I'm a little bit of a people pleaser too. So when I'd send him something cool and he'd go, oh, that's amazing. Let's try this. I'd get like a real, you know, thrill out of pleasing him. And he's a great musician and a great guy. So I think just working with a good producer as well, which not a lot of people get an opportunity to do, is a huge eye-opener. It's like if you get a good producer, it's like it's worth a lot. I'm glad you had that great experience with him. Can you tell the listener what the actual Starlight Ballroom is and was? Yeah, it's like I was sitting here over COVID and I got a lovely letter from a man up in Mayo, County Mayo, about an hour north of here. And he he had read or heard in an interview that I was a fan of Roy Orbison. So 
He told me in the letter that his dad opened a ballroom of romance in Ireland in the late 60s. Ballrooms are all over rural Ireland. It's where everybody met women and men. The only opportunity they got to meet, because women weren't allowed into pubs, they'd go there and all these show bands would play. And a show band was basically a thing before you had your record players here they would play the hits of the day. So if you wanted to hear them, you'd hear the show bands do them. So when these big ballrooms were built in the 50s, 60s, some of the bigger American artists would come and tour them. Johnny Cash did them. A lot of them did it during periods of their probably career where there was quite a lull and they weren't very cool. Like Jim Reeves played down the street here in this old ballroom and Johnny Cash, Roy Orbison. But when I heard Roy Orbison played the all these places and he played the Starlight, you know, it just fascinated me because I'm a fan of all that music and them artists. And I was going, oh my God, to think that he played in a this ballroom, which is literally in the middle of nowhere, on the outskirts of a town. And all these people came to see him play there back in the 60s. That just, you know, it blew my mind because there's nothing like that going on around here now. You can almost hear the ghosts of Johnny Cash. <laughs> I know, it's like, it's pretty cool. And it, the Starlight had a revolving stage. So I spoke to an old man who was at it that night at the Roy Orbison gig in 69. And he said the support band were playing, like the warm-up band. And as they were finishing, the guys were around the back, you know, move, moving the revolving stage. So the, they started to disappear. And as they were disappearing, the stage rotated around and Roy Orbison and the band, they could hear the riff for Pretty Woman. And I thought, that's the future. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I know. It's just really quite incredible. So it just, it filled me with this whole sense too of kind of like, a, kind of a sense of belong. I like, I, I feel like I would have belonged back then, you know, and because I belong in this place, but sometimes I feel like there's not a lot here for me. But when I heard about that kind of thing going on back in the day, I could throw on these rose-tinted glasses and really add add as much romance to the whole era as I, as I wished, you know? One of the reasons why I love this album so much, Alton, it has this very throwback, nostalgic feel to it for me. There's a song in there called Paradise Lane, do you mind if we listen to it for a little bit and you can share some of your thoughts? Absolutely. Mum woke by the river Shannon Where the boats go by Saddled up ready to cycle Across the countryside To find a place she'd only heard its name. Oh, I love that song. So tell us about the arrangements, the parts. What did you struggle with with this song lyrically? What came easy for you? Anything to share? Yeah, I mean, this song is very special to me because my mom told me the story behind this. She she gave me the complete story for this maybe 10 years ago. She said where they grew up in this tiny little rural area close by about three miles from 
a little bit of a bigger town. She, when she was only a little kid, she'd hear her parents and some of the, the adult folk around talk about a place called Paradise Lane, and they used to call it Paradise for short. So she'd hear somebody, an adult, say, oh, I was down there last night in Paradise. And she didn't really ask the parents what it was. She just thought there's a place near here called Paradise, and she dreamt up this whole thing in her head that it was probably Disneyland or something. And growing up where she grew up, there, you know, it, it probably is Paradise in a sense it's beautiful, but there wasn't a lot going on or they, they didn't have any cell phones or nothing. They barely had electricity. So she got on her bike to go look for Paradise Lane. And when she told me the story and she was laughing at how naive she was, I really just thought, oh, my God, I got to write a song about this. So first and foremost, I, I just I said, I got to put this into a song. And I wrote the whole melody. I had that kind of it's an unusual melody. I don't even know what the chords are. I just discovered this kind of a lovely kind of unusual. When people hear it now, I've been playing it with some people. They're like, what is that chord? And I'm like, I don't know. But it sounds really unusual. And uh, so I found all of that and I'd written the bulk of the song, but I couldn't structure it fully. I couldn't really finish it. And David helped me with that. He he suggested doing the intro a cappella and ending it a cappella and Again, I think he, he could see, he could kind of see just the arrangement where I couldn't. I, I had the essence of the song. I had the lyrics. I, I was singing it at him and everything. But, you know, he helped with the last verse and he kind of just guided me along. And and I was so pleased that it's, com- it's complete and that I got it down on a record. Yes. And what I really enjoy about Paradise Lane, Olton, is the way that your vocal prowess truly shines. And I mentioned before we did this interview, it kind of sneaks up on you real quickly that you're thinking that it's an acapella tune. Okay. And then you, all these other elements get added to it. So I appreciate that kind of composition. There's another song that really caught my attention and I really enjoy. It's called Hurts Like Heaven. Let's mm. take a listen. Coming out of the cloud With nothing to feel proud about Is our love just a dream? Hold on, let me catch my breath After each fight we'd connect in bed Then I go rogue and you stay quiet We drive that... What is it about this song that speaks to you? This was a chorus. This was like, there was there was four songs on the record that were out and out chorites. When I say that, not even four, sorry, two. Some I brought to David that were 30% there, 50%, and he helped me with them. This was born like a week before we recorded. It was written in Los Angeles. He sent me a melody. So David sent me the melody of this song. And he sent me that one line, hurts like heaven. That was it. And he muttered that kind of as he was singing it on the chorus part. There was nothing else. Chords and hurts like heaven. 
and that's where I sat down then. And I could, like I said earlier, when I'm when I, I suppose I'm not a great would say when I didn't have a gun to my head, but you know, you're you're under that time pressure. You're going, okay, we're recording in a week, and he sent me this, and I sat down with it, and I was it was about a breakup, and I wasn't too long out of it. It was it was long enough out of it, maybe a year or two that I could actually probably look back and see see some of see the I could see the wood from the trees maybe a little you know and uh yeah and I suppose when he sent me that line and the melody I, I could play into that I with what was going on with me and it's very much about a couple who are kind of uh living in their own heads but living together and kind of uh not communicating well and stuff so and I think the hurts like heaven thing when when David said that to me just the pain of that, you know, of and the, and the confusion and and there's also a little element if you stand outside at all of going, oh, it's so simple, you just got to communicate, but it's never that easy. So I, I I brought all of that into the song and 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 wrote the lyrics and I added the middle eight part to it as well and and yeah and, and just wrote it over about two days and then really finessed it, you know, I finessed it with David. We. We, we we kind of tightened it up and did a few little tricks that you might do just to arrange a song. Because David and myself, we really, we knew, we, we kind of felt like we had a great song, to be honest, you know. We did feel we we had a great song. And while some of the other songs on the record played themselves, this one we worked really hard at, actually. And even from recording, like I'd only do maybe two passes on the song, three, and we'd have it. I don't like to overdo it. But this one, he really made me work at it because vocally it does quite a bit. And we kind of polished this one a lot. It felt like one of them songs that needed to be, you know, quite quite perfect in its in its performance and presentation. But yeah, it's a song that I think, anyway, it's an album track, so anyone who's heard it, all right, I get a few messages about that track. I think people, when they hear it, they either relate to it or, or, or else just enjoy it, you know, or... Last week, I had the incredible fortune of interviewing John Douglas from Trash Can Sinatra. God. And I know you had, last year, you did some touring with him. So I want to transition into kind of performance-based questions here. When you get out on that stage, what is it that you really seen? Take us into the skin of that moment when you're about to perform. Are you nervous? Are you excited? Are you all the above? It's strange. I think the last two years I'm enjoying playing live more than ever. I, I would still be nervous to a degree. And it, a lot of performing is a strange thing, especially for me. I'm not like I, I started writing songs because I wanted to write songs. I started singing in my bedroom because it was something I think that helped me when I was a kid. And But I was never like really gravitating to the to the spotlight. It wasn't it's that's not why I, I write songs and that but I I think I because I love writing my songs and then I do love my songs I'm like they need a vehicle and live as much as and I love recording I love writing I love recording I'm very much in my element live for me is a little trickier it takes a lot of energy for me I get quite nervous but once I'm up there and I'm in good form and a gig is going well yeah, you can re- you feel like you've got a little bit of a superpower on a good night because, you know, you start doing stuff 
guitar wise and singing that like you can't really plan you you're not really aware you can do it till you're doing it and having an audience that's behind you and you know there's a lot of things that really make a gig work and the audience is a huge one you can sometimes you can have an audience you can just go oh my god they were a strange audience and it's not their fault might be a strange room the sound mightn't be so good but when things fall into place like having john that time in ireland we did three shows like we we'd meet up we we hung out for the three days so you're immediately talking about songs you're driving in the car you're having some fun you're having some food you're getting to the venue and like so stuff like that all makes for like a very positive show at the end of the day it's in a weird way it's all part of the production you know it's all these things are really important and yeah when when it's going well and you feel like the sound is good and the audience are receiving it and you know you're telling your little stories between the songs you're getting a few laughs then it's a wonderful wonderful feeling and a great connection and i think it's it's very much like a gig really really relies on both audience and performer i think like if you're just up there performing and an audience is not reacting well or the room isn't great sometimes it's not as good but Nowadays, I also tend to look on gigs because I do a lot of them. I try not to analyze them all so much. I'm just like, go out there, do the best you can. Gig is over, do the next one. Because, you know, when you start doing a lot of them, you can't be too intense about it. You, a lot of stuff's out of your control. So you can't dwell on it too much either. You got to just go, okay, that, that was that was good. Let's move on. And uh, hopefully there's people in the audience who have heard you and you've moved them and you know you've moved them off their ass to buy a record as well because <laughs> that keeps you going <laughs> my classroom experience was built on performing because i always felt that if students could perform in front of parents other teachers friends they could pretty much do anything because we know public speaking performance is the number one fear that people have Really? So I have to ask you this question. Sure. With regards to performing, because you've done extensive touring and played quite a bit, how do you make each show a little unique and different? What do you do that provides a little bit more spark or stepping out of your comfort zone from the previous show? Like if I think back to even five, six, seven years ago when I was doing a show, I'd be, I would be, I was a lot more nervous, but. I wouldn't engage with the audience as much. I kind of went out there and I was a little bit more reverent about it all and kind of going, oh, here's the song. It's, you know, when you play your song and thank you and a bit of silence tuning up and that. But the last couple of years, why I'm enjoying playing more is that I, I, I chat a lot now at the gigs and not a huge, not, not to the degree of like where there's more chat than song, but like I, I, I find if I get out there and i'm just really open with the audience and i I put my guard down and i'm i'm i be myself with them in between the songs i think it really helps me relax more but i know that it also helps them relax because you're showing yourself a lot you're showing them a lot more of yourself and it becomes less precious the whole thing and a lot more fun and and one thing i certainly want to inject into my shows in the last couple of years and going forward is that 
people have come out and sure they want to hear a song, they want to hear a nice singer, but they want to be entertained as well. And if you're just up there with an acoustic guitar and 80% of your songs or 60% of them are somewhat downbeat and a bit sorrowful at times, then I kind of feel like I have a responsibility here to really, you know, shake this up as well and and have a lot of fun with these people and, and show them a kind of all-round night. I love making people laugh, even with my songs. Now there's some tracks on the Starlight Ballroom that are good fun. But like, and then I've got some songs where you certainly have a few people in the audience shedding a tear and crying. But it's really nice after that to take them on a different journey and, you know, put them through the paces for the, for the night. And I kind of feel like that's where, kind of all, also feel I've arrived at a place performing where I'm, I'm, I'm capable of doing that, which is wonderful. And yeah, I, I, you do have to kind of go as well. I have to say to myself, okay, Alton, you're nervous, but all these people have left their homes to come see a play and they've gotten babysitters and some have some have driven some have booked hotel rooms and dinners so you're like yeah this is i've got a responsibility here like to entertain these people and that's a really good pressure to have i absolutely love that you said that because i used to tell my students that look we're asking people to come and watch us perform not me but them yes you're asking people to take time out of their schedule to watch you. Yeah. So giving them the razzle-dazzle, let's give them something to remember, whatever that is. Totally. And make them feel important. Like they're coming to your home for some kind of an event or an occasion, whatever it may be. That makes sense? Totally. No, I, and it's, it's a huge thing. And I do notice too, the more like, you know, I'm playing with a band at the moment and, Mary Cochran, who's a great Irish singer, we're doing a lot of stuff together. We we do a podcast like yourself. We do a weekly one and we've been going out with our band playing and Mary's great fun and she's been playing for 40 years. So, you know, I'm I'm up there with the guitar and she's got a couple of kind of upbeat numbers and I find myself kind of half dancing around the stage, which is something I wouldn't have done five years ago. And it, that's me, pu- like that's me pushing myself quite a bit for me to dance on a stage or even you know, shake my hips a little is it's, it's, it's out of my comfort zone. But when you do it, then you're just like, Oh my God, it just gives you such a boost. And, and obviously the audience love all that too. It's just, it's, and then it's all less precious. And, you know, I get, I'm not, I'm not old, but I'm, I've been doing this quite a while now. And you're like, Oh, come on, don't take it all so serious. Have some fun. <laughs> uh, you're bringing the human element to this conversation. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to wrap the conversation up with a few more questions. Speaking of inspiration, I want to talk about two to three albums that have had a significant impact on your life, if you wouldn't mind sharing. Sure. Like, this is kind of a tricky one for me because, you know, I meet people at gigs and I meet people online who chat to me and that, and they're like, the real music fans, you know, and, and they've got, 200 vinyl in their home and they go do you know x y and do you know this record and that and i'm not really an anorak in that sense i never was i i I was always a guy who'd go i love that song oh my god and i'll zone in on that song and play it on repeat for a couple of weeks till i tire it out and then i then i'd hear a totally different song by a totally different artist and i'd go that route for a little while but so it's been quite a few years since an album 
has actually a full album has pulled me in like that. But I'd have to go back quite a bit. Like, I mean, when I think back when I was a teenager, when REM released, oh, geez, I can't, Monster. That was a huge record for me because I didn't know REM did that stuff. I, I was 13 when Out of Time came out and Losing My Religion. But when, when I heard What's the Frequency, Kenneth, with the electric guitars, REM, from Monster, that just absolutely... And the video, I remember the video playing on MTV, or we just had RT, actually. Yeah, the strobe lights and just this showing his feet. And oh, th- that actually just set a fire under me. And I love that record for that. Oh, great pick. Is there another one? Let's see. I think I might have to go with, well, R.E.M. were a huge band for me. Yeah. And, you know, they still are. When I hear some of them tracks now, I'm just like, oh, my God, what an amazing band. And they seem like such cool guys as well. What a great thing they did as well by just stopping. (laughs) Like, what a great thing to do. You know, there's a a few bands I won't mention that probably should have (laughs) done the same thing. But let me see. Another record, I'll, I'll pick one more. I think I'm going to go with Neil Young after the Gold Rush. That that that's that was a huge record for me as well. My teenage years, like I had Nirvana and Pearl Jam and R.E.M. going on. My my transition into kind of singer songwriters was Neil Young, and that made sense going from Nirvana, Pearl Jam, and I think I might have heard Neil Young on the back of Pearl Jam, but then I discovered you know, at Harvest and After the Gold Rush, them two records and hearing them songs from a singer-songwriter and some were more band songs. That 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 was the perfect transition for me where I started to go down that road of looking at songwriters. And I'm going to say After the Gold Rush. So that they're, they're probably two records that had had a big effect on me for sure. You're not the first artist to tell me that. <laughs> About which? Harvest or After the Gold Rush or any Neil Young, R.E.M. I've had numerous conversations with artists really? regarding. Oh, yeah. Oh, Amazing. Yeah. Wow. Yes. Yeah. So you just nailed two artist bands that have had a huge impact on artists' lives and incredible body of work. Incredible, yeah. What speaks to your heart other than music? Comedy. Comedy, as in like going to comedy clubs in L.A.? Yeah. Yeah, I went to see more stand-up in L.A. than I did when I went to see music, actually. And I love watching stand-up specials. I I think, again, it's probably a thing that, like, because I get up there with a guitar and I sing and I write songs, and I know how hard that is. But I know how it's done. I know how it's done. But when I see a guy or a girl get up there with a microphone, I'm just like, holy moly, what an amazing craft. And what a what a difficult, difficult craft. And I I but what I do understand when I see a comic get up, I understand the amount of work that goes into a set. You know, I un I, I do understand that. So I have quite a fascination with it. And as I said, like when I played at Largo in LA where you got all these great stands up, I, I was I think I made a joke between one of the songs and I got such a laugh in there off the audience and that thrilled me more than them applauding my songs. I was like, I told a joke at Largo 
you know, where Larry David was last week and Bill Burr was here the night before. And I got a laugh. And I was like, wow, you know, that's 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 my kind of like little, you know, fantasy. <laughs> that is hilarious. Yeah, All I, right. do, I do have a thing for that. It's like, but I'm I'm in the very, very lucky position now that I can go, well, like I can, I've got like a few couple of minutes between songs here. I can I can do that. So I've started to have a little fun with that as well. But uh, yeah, I really just admire that craft and also feel for them a lot because I think it looks like incredibly difficult. As you said, public speaking presentations, it's it's one of the top, you know, fears for people if they if they were asked. And I think to get up there with a microphone and hope people laugh is just so brave. <laughs> but going back to what you alluded to earlier about the power of connecting with your audience and what that superpower. And I'm sure comedians feel that once they feel that they have the audience in their hands, right? Oh, yeah. I'd imagine so. Yeah, it's, it's a huge thing for them. When was the last time you showed an act of kindness or someone showed genuine kindness towards you? Oof. I'd like to think that happens quite regularly. So I'm trying to think when is the last time. I'd like to think on a day-to-day basis that uh, I receive many acts of kindness and, and in return as well. I, I've... Because I live in a, I live in outside even a small town now, I don't know what it's like over there. But one thing about Ireland that I think is so lovely, I walk a lot. As I said, you know, sometimes I walk in the countryside, or sometimes I walk, sometimes I walk in the town. But in the town close by to me, there's a, there's some I see some people walking around who you just know they don't have, maybe don't have anyone in their lives or not many people. And like I know it's like that John Prine song, but. I think to walk past somebody and really acknowledge them and say, hello, how's your day? I know it's not a a, a, a massive act of kindness, but uh, I know if I'm not in a great space or in my head a lot and somebody walks past and gives you a lovely smile or a gesture, it can really have a profound effect on your day. So I like to think that happens every day, you know. I, I try and make, you know, make time for people if I can and... I think that in, in this society and in, in this current day and age, if you make time for a chat with somebody, it means a lot. There's not as much of it as there should be. Perhaps, and maybe it's changed because of social media. And that's just a, a newer way of connecting and conversing with people. Yeah, like, I think like even from when we grew up, things have changed so much, you know. All our houses used to be pretty much open houses. People would just wander in and have a cup of tea and a chat and stuff. And because because we didn't have social media and we weren't all stuck to our screens, and a big part of me kind of feels like, oh my god, that that I think that's a, probably a a lot a much healthier way to live, you know. And I and like even in Ireland, it's funny right now because I think we're going through a transition where the pub was such a social center in Ireland. But pubs now are closing down. It's just the drink culture, thankfully, at the same time has changed because people aren't drinking the way they used to, which is great. But then the effect of that is you don't have as many public places to meet. And as I said earlier, you know, when you mentioned the coffee, there's these little coffee places popping up and they're slowly replacing it. But they're not they're not in all rural towns yet. So I think there's there's definitely a need for community again. And, and and not the social media type. I think more 
you know, people chatting in a room. So sorry, I probably gone off the point there, W. No, thank you for sharing. Okay, Alton, we're going to close the curtains on this conversation with a little game. It's called Name That Album or Name That Artist. Okay. I'm going to give you some clues. Right. Once you feel like you have the answer, just say it out loud. Okay. The big clue is this is a very famous album. Okay. Okay. Are you ready? Sure. I hope I got this, but who, let's, let's try. Here we go. Here's your first clue. Zebra Crossing. I've got it. Name it. Abbey Road. <laughs> <laughs> you mean, thankfully, you didn't make it too hard. <laughs> oh wow okay well next time we have a conversation i want to make it 10 times harder. <laughs> yeah no i got lucky i got lucky because as i said earlier you know i'm not i don't want to use the word anorak but i'm not like you know I, i'm not an encyclopedia on on record on albums and i'm probably not even on artists but like i do like so i like a good song and, and i like the craft of a song so i'm relieved i got that I had some other clues for you, like three suits. I wouldn't have got that. I wouldn't have got... What else did you have? I had Busy Street. No, I wouldn't have got that. EMI Studios. Probably um, not. No, I wouldn't have got that either. Barefoot. Bare feet. <laughs> I, might have, uh, I, might have, I might have said the artists. Volkswagen. Is there a Volkswagen on the cover? There is. There's that famous Volkswagen because it's a Beetle. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and what I learned was that was totally haphazard. Like that was not designed in any way. Interesting. Okay. When you showed it to me there, I thought that was a that was intentional. So yeah, thank you for playing. Name that album, name that artist. I'm so proud of myself. You should be. Getting it in one. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> What's next for Alton? What's coming down the line in 2024? Touring, EPs, singles, albums, what have you? Well, I'm actually, as I mentioned earlier, Mary Coughlin, my good friend, great Irish artist. We we do our weekly podcast called You're Not Listening with Mary Coughlin and Alton Condon. It's just a lot of fun. We we just talk nonsense. There's no form to it. And sometimes we sing. And I mean, when we sing, we just turn on a song on, on, on the phone and sing along with it. It's it's so haphazard, but it's so joyous. And so we're going out doing a bunch of kind of podcast shows, but also music. And that's starting this month in March and April. So I'm doing a lot with Mary and I'm going to put out another, like in Ireland, I know in the States it tends to be you put out a couple of singles, then the album drops and that's it. But in Ireland here with the radio stations, it's great. I can release another single or two from the Starlight Ballroom. So I'm going to do that, W, just to, you know, like I said, do a few more shows on the back of that and bring more awareness of the album. People who have not heard it might get to hear it. Sell some more vinyl, send, sell some more CDs. And yeah, it's just, you know, this is what I do for a living now. And I'm very lucky to be doing it. And I'm I'm, I'm so lucky that people are coming to shows now. And it's it's a long road for me to get to this point where I'm doing it, doing it full time. And. Yeah, I'm making the most of it. Alton Conlon, thank you so much for this conversation. 
I had a wonderful time speaking to you about you as a musician, more importantly, you as a human being, and what you're able to contribute to the vast landscape of the arts, not just in Ireland, but all over the world that people have embraced your music. So thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you, W. And you you brought up some things there that's great. I got to think about that I, you know, like I said, when I was younger and stuff. And that's always nice to get a kind of a, a view on everything, you know, stand back from it. Yeah. Well, absolutely. Thank you so much, everyone. Again, my name is W, host of the High Art on the Edge page. That was Surprise Cast with Olton Conlon. Take care. Keep listening to good music. It's always out there. You used to call me your guitar fool. Beat up and I'm out of tune. Singing a broken melody. Coming out of the cloud It's nothing to feel bad about If I go wild and you go dark We curse the flame